Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. If you've been listening to the show lately, you know that we are covering as many frontrunners that can be found on planet Earth when it comes to finance, wealth, money, the economy, investments. And in that line of frontrunners, there's been something brewing in Florida, in the United States. There's a man named Michael Markowski. He's been in business since 1977 with a background at Merrill Lynch. He was the youngest stockbroker hired by Merrill, and he was also at Oppenheimer and DLJ. He was in Wall Street for a number of years. He was a stockbroker, an investment banker, and an analyst. And he is the founder of the Global Financial News Network of StockDiagnostics.com, a revolutionary product, and crowdclassifieds.com and two other websites, onlinefinancialsector.com and bearmarkettracker.com. He was named Fortune Magazine in their 2004 Annual Investor Guide edition as one of the 50 great investors. Due to the situation that happened with Sears, he's considered by the financial media to be an expert in utilizing cash flow instead of earnings to predict stock prices. It is my great pleasure and a great honor to welcome Michael Markowski to its rainmaking time. Good morning. Good morning, Kim. How are you doing? I'm excited to have you on board here today. You're known by those who are following you, but I still think you're a well-kept secret. And I'd like you to share a little bit about stock diagnostics, a little bit about that product. That's such a revolutionary thing that you created. Talk a little bit about that. And let's then open it up to all the things that you've been up to. In my years on Wall Street, I was basically a numbers cruncher. I don't want to elaborate on this now, maybe a little later in the conversation. There's no doubt in my mind that mathematics drives stock prices. The share price follows the mathematics of a company, their financial statements. There's a direct relationship between the two. So I founded a company, GFNN, to find those mathematical anomalies that occur in the financial statements of public companies. So you can use those anomalies. You know, we report on those anomalies. You can use those anomalies to either eliminate the stock from your portfolio if it's a negative anomaly or add the stock to your portfolio or, or hold the stock in your portfolio if it's a positive anomaly to reduce risk and increase performance. So we had put these systems together, which cost millions to build, and we were not ready to commercially launch them. Then we had, in 2001, Enron went bankrupt, surprisingly, and its stock fell from $55 to nothing in about six months. So I had just completed the software to find these anomalies at that time, and I decided to run on my system, even though I... I didn't complete the software only a couple of weeks before Enron went out of business and had no time to warn people that stock was already three or something at that time. I did do an autopsy on Enron and found what caused their sudden collapse and death that went from a stock being $60 or $55 six months earlier to why it went out of business unexpectedly. What I found is that Enron was actually reporting record earnings per share, which is the metric that Wall Street uses to gauge the value of a stock. But at the same time, it was reporting a record negative cash flow. So Enron was saying, hey, we've earned a billion dollars this quarter. But when you looked at their cash flow statements, the company had actually burned $2 billion of cash. Wow. Yeah. This had been happening for a couple of quarters. The problem, according to the accounting regulations that public companies follow, you can have a public company basically report a profit without booking any cash. It's real easy to do. In fact, it's interesting that when I did this research and found that Enron was the problem, and I back-tested five years of data, because if you're going to find an anomaly, you've got to find out if it did it work in the past. You mean as a pattern? Yeah, it's got to be a pattern that worked in the past, and I found... In the previous five years that before Enron had collapsed, and I call this EPS syndrome, and the syndrome is when you have a company that's reporting record earnings at the same time generating record negative cash flow, we dub it with the EPS syndrome. Anyway, <laughs> I had found that there were 
several hundred companies in the previous five years that had also been diagnosed with this EPS syndrome. And one of them was Sunbeam Corporation, which was five years earlier. When I looked at Sunbeam's financials after I found they were one of the 300, I went back and, and I found that both of the company's auditors were Arthur Anderson. That gave me a chills down my spine. Well, here's what happened, and here's how it works, okay, because Enron's more complex than Sunbeam. Sunbeam sold a billion dollars worth of barbecue grills, and as soon as they shipped those grills to Walmart, Sears, and everybody else, they were able to book a billion dollars in revenue and the profits that they made on those grills, even though they didn't collect a penny from Walmart or any of these guys. Public companies are notorious, especially those manufacturing companies, for shipping things. There'll be somebody working there at midnight at the end of the year to get stuff off of their platform, off their loading dock, into a truck. Because as soon as that inventory, those grills, TVs, whatever, are leave their factory and go onto the truck, that books a profit for them. How is it possible for you to have been able to zero in like a laser on the pulse and health of a company via cash flow, and yet these companies are not recognizing that their cash flow position is central to their health? They know they're not generating any cash, okay? And Wall Street knows they're not generating any cash because there's a cash flow statement. There's three financial statements that a public company is required to file with the SEC. There's the balance sheet, the income statement, and the cash flow statement. There's a handbook called the Securities Analysis Handbook. It's like the Bible. It's called the Securities Analysis Handbook. And it was written by Benjamin Graham, who was really considered to be the father and Warren Buffett's mentor for financial statement analysis. That book, 500 pages long, there's not a single chapter, sentence, or paragraph that covers cash flow. So you have all of these MBAs running around who don't pay attention to the cash flow statement, but their companies are required to file them. Years ago, somebody sat me down and showed me how you can grow your business, actually grow the capitalization of the business, but run out of cash if you don't properly pace your growth. And that you can build your business and go out of business at the same time if that's off. Why do you think it is that companies are able to do this, that their mentors are not mentioning cash flow as a central key? The interesting thing is when I found this, I found dozens of companies that had the same problem that Enron had that were $20, $10, $30, $50 a share. Okay, And I started warning. I told people about them. But one of them was interesting I looked at the cash flow statements, and I said, this company is going out of business. Two weeks later, the company came out and announced that they were buying their own stock back. Are you allowed to mention who they are? MSCI or something like that. It was a maker of projectors that you use with the computer. Okay. I said, hey, what, the board of directors, these guys are going to be out of cash in six months, and they're buying their own stock back? This got to be fraud. Sure enough, a month later, I looked at their financials. They bought the stock back. Six months later, they went out of business. So the point is the whole board of directors basically made that decision because they don't understand how to read a cash flow statement. Isn't that frightening? It's frightening. If you look at the market right now, I would say there's 60 to 70% of all public companies have never generated a single quarter of positive cash flow. Oh, my God. There is so much risk out there. It's scary. So what you've designed, every investor should be able to use, shouldn't they? Absolutely, and, and that's what we do. I mean, in stockdiagnostics.com, you go and you look at it, it's either green or it's red. If your cash flow is green for the last five years or last year, there is opportunities when a company goes from negative cash flow to positive cash flow to make a lot of money. We're talking 5, 10, 20, 50 times your money. The bottom line is you want to look and see what is the cash flow doing right now as the company turned the corner and gone from negative to positive cash flow, and what's the consistency. But yeah, every broker out there who's managing money for a client should be looking at this, and anybody who's making their own investment decisions should be monitoring this cash flow. How come this is not known all across the investment community? This is a critical tool. Wall Street is not interested in alerting their investors about how significant this is. And they really don't emphasize it in their research reports because if investors were trained to not invest in companies with negative cash flow, 
Wall Street would be out of business on the investment banking side. Well, let me ask you this. Is there ever a time when companies have a temporary negative cash flow situation for like a month or two months, and then they ended up making a ton of money? Aren't there patterns like that you've seen? There's rare patterns like that. You know, I'll give you a good example. Fleming is a perfect example of what I'm talking about. I had a newsletter that I was writing at the time, and I warned everybody to get out of Fleming companies. We're out of Oklahoma City. They were had 18,000 employees. They were really the next Enron, okay? They were a 50-some-odd dollar stock. They had 18,000 employees. They were on the New York Stock Exchange paying a dividend and had been in business for 50-plus. They'd been paying a dividend for 50 years. And I came out and warned people to get out of the stock. Morgan Stanley at the same time went out and raised them $400 million. And I said, hey, this has got serious negative cash flow problems, 18,000 employees. And I said in my prediction, this company will not be in business within 12 months. And Morgan Stanley's raising them $400 million. Now, why is Morgan Stanley doing that? Because they want to get the commission of 10%. They're getting $40 million. And that's how they pay their bonuses to the CEO and all the executives on the street. So, sure enough, Fleming was out of business inside of 12 months. It went bankrupt and totally went away. That's a tragedy, and 18,000 people lost their jobs? 18,000 people lost their jobs. This whole setup is a conflict of interest, then. This whole setup. There's an inherent conflict of interest between Wall Street and the world. It's always going to be there. They're never going to alert their customers why they should pay attention to the cash flow statement. Holy Toledo. How have you been received, Michael? I've been written up by the media. Everybody's written me up positive. I've been written up by every major financial publication, newspapers, all that stuff. So I've been positively received. Is that because of the accurate calls that you make in the marketplace? Is that why? The media wants those calls, but they're not coming to me because, you know, I've had something that's declined by 100% or appreciated by 500%. They're coming to me because there's something in their area where they're located that they have an affiliation to that I'm issuing a warning on. That happened with Sears. I put a warning out when all the analysts on Wall Street were bullish on Sears back in 2002 and the stock was trading at $55 a share. You know, they had this problem where they were generating negative cash flow with positive earnings. We call that cashless earnings. And we issued a warning on Sears. And we also rate these companies one through eight. And when the ratings go down, if you own Sears and you're a member of our network, we'll alert you when a rating goes down. So after two downgrades in a row, the Chicago Tribune called me and said, hey, listen, you're the only guy out there who's warning people to get out of Sears and everybody else is saying buy it. You know, why are you negative? I said negative cash flow. They went back to the CFO of Sears and said, hey, this guy is telling you that, you know, negative. And the guy said he doesn't know what he's talking about. So they called me back and said, listen, can you pinpoint what is causing Sears negative cash flow? Did my analysis. I called them back and said they got problems with their credit card receivables. They're not collecting on their credit card receivables. So they went back to the CFO. He said I was out of my mind. They printed it in the Chicago Tribune and basically said I should be out managing a hedge fund because I really didn't know what I was talking about or whatever the case was. And everybody forgot about it. A week later, the president of Sears Credit Card Division unexpectedly resigned. And two months later, when they reported their earnings, they shocked Wall Street because they had an earnings miss and they shocked Wall Street because they had to write down their credit card receivables and the stock fell all the way to 18, which was a 10-year low. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm not laughing at them. It's just, you know. Yeah. Whenever we downgrade something, we used to get calls from the media. Not you, know, that much. you know who you remind me of? The Edgar Casey of the stock world. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I say Edgar Casey because he was more right than wrong about people's health. But yeah, to me, that's a compliment. You've had $30 million invested in the Global Financial News Network, correct? Right. And you're also considered the ESPN of financial information. How will this play a role in crowdfunding? In our initial conversation, you said that crowdfunding was going to explode and that you were involved in it. Talk about that. I'm out there looking for long-term trends. My average holding period on the stock is years. But I'm looking for stocks that can multiply in value. I'm not interested in something that's going to go up by 10%. You know, I'm not a trader, absolutely not a trader. And I've had many stocks over the years that have multiplied by an excess of 10 times, 20 times in value. So I'm always looking for a long-term trend to get involved in. 
like right now, I would absolutely not be an owner of Intel, Microsoft, Hewlett Packard, Dell, any of those companies, because who can tell me what businesses these guys are going to be in five years down the road? Because tablets and smartphones are taking over the PC. There's been several significant trends in the last 200 years that have been major economic events that resulted in opportunities to make a lot of money, okay? One of them, obviously, was the advent of the Internet, okay, and all those companies that came in, you know, eBay, Yahoo, Google, all that. Before that, one industry that capitalized big was the casino gambling industry when New Jersey legalized gambling in the mid-1970s. That changed the whole long-term gambling industry. But prior to that, it was just, you know, one little city in Las Vegas. And now the gambling industry has probably grown a hundredfold since then. I know about all this because I had bought shares for Resorts International for clients while I was at Merrill Lynch, and I watched that stock go from 10 bucks to 350 in a year. So I'm always a guy looking for the leading edge. What's the new trend out there? Back when they struck gold in California and San Francisco in 1849, 10% of the population wound up going to California to pan for gold. That trend, I mean, Levi Strauss made a ton of money. The miners didn't make much. But those guys who provided the stuff to the mining industry, the tent makers, the jeans makers, that's who made the fortune. Because if you look at the pictures back then, everybody was living in a tent because there was no housing. So that was a trend where a few companies made a lot of money. The one legislation that President Obama got done in his four years that I think could be his legacy, even bigger than Obamacare. In April, both houses of Congress got together. The crowdfunding bill was passed, and the president signed the bill. What it does is it reforms the securities laws that were put in place in 1933. Which I've always felt to be all aimed at big business and people that had massive money, because in order to get in the game, you had to have a lot of money. Yeah, and let me explain to you what happened with just so you understand it. In 1933, it came about because the Securities and Exchange Commission was formed. During the Roaring Twenties, anybody could sell a stock to anybody else. You could sell it. You could advertise it in the newspaper, a stock for sale, and we're selling stock in our company. In other words, any company could issue securities and sell them without any regulatory oversight. You know, you could go to a bar and the bartender would say, you want to buy some shares in our bar? The owner is going to sell some shares. It was a wild west back then. That's what partly caused the crash of 29 is they were printing so much stock, nobody was overseeing anything. And so the SEC four years later came into being, and the first thing that the SEC said is, hey, we're going to create a rule that you cannot advertise to sell your shares to the public. Between 1933 and 2012, it was illegal for a company, private or public, to post an advertisement saying we need capital. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. No matter what the state of the economy is, there will always be time-honored traditions and special events. The Sterling Hut has been in business since 2008, offering a wide range of fantastic sterling silver products, including finely crafted mint julep cups, personalized baby shower gifts, photo albums, exquisite jewelry boxes and awards, and so much more. The Sterling Hut is an authorized Silver Star international reseller of fine silver products and anniversary gifts. The business is owned by Jewel and Bob Howard. If you would be interested in buying someone a gift of pure sterling silver or sterling plated silver, you can call 1-888-819-1009. Get a 15% discount by going to the Sterling Hut, the Sterling, S-T-E-R-L-I-N-G, Hut, H-U-T, dot com, and saying it's rainmaking time. They will honor a 15% discount for you. Beautiful Sterling silver gifts for all of life's occasions, manufactured in Italy and handcrafted by skilled artisans. They can also be engraved in sterling picture frames, oval and rectangular silver trays, champagne ice buckets, silver goblets, coffee and tea service, coffee pots, silver mugs, candelabras, and silver jewelry unrivaled in design and style. Go to the Sterling Hut at sterlinghut.com. And back to the show. Now, I have a quick question for you, just in what you just said. In your professional insight, 
Do you think that by them doing that, it violated a free market perspective and ability for people to choose what they get involved in? I think it did. But remember, our economy had just gone through right. a, no, I understand. a bloodletting back in the late 1920s, early 30s, and it was a knee-jerk reaction, but absolutely. I mean, basically what it did is it gave total control of anybody in the United States who wanted to raise money it had to go through a broker. The broker would generate the commission. Exactly. You know, it was for the benefit of the brokerage industry and to the expense of all these companies that really need to be able to raise capital. And let's face it, I mean, if you're out trying to raise $100,000 in capital, a broker's not even going to give you the time of day. Exactly. So you have no option. Even for a million dollars, there's a lot of them that don't want to get involved. Yeah. So the crowdfunding bill basically said that you can raise capital. It wiped away those advertising prohibitions. The other thing that the SEC did when they were formed is they said companies could not sell their securities to unqualified or, let's say, to anybody but high net worth right. investors. And, and, well, the way they language it is they said it had to be, quote, a sophisticated investor. Boom. And that means you're only dealing with a certain mindset, a certain type of on-the-grid conventional investor that is more adverse to startups and more adverse to new types of revolutionary products, services, and businesses than what's already out there. But it's more than that, Kim. Because of the regulations they put in place, it guaranteed that no more than 1% of the United States population would be qualified to invest in these kind of deals. So 99% of the market since 1933, 99% of the population has, has been unable to participate in these kind of deals. I understand. The law, not only did it enable you to post that you want to raise capital on a website, so now you can do that when you couldn't do that for the last 70, 80 years, but it also gave you the opportunity to sell your securities or your shares to the public in small denominations. So now that opens up a huge market of people who've never been able to participate. Think about Facebook. Think about Google. Think about all these companies where wealthy people made, you know, 10, 20, 50 times or 100 times their money. The small investor didn't have an opportunity to put up $1,000 or put up $2,000 to do that. With these sweeping changes that have gone into place, individual investors can now get involved and invest in these things. And those small companies can get the capital that they need. The existing crowdfunding companies that are online, I have to tell you, I feel bad saying this, but I don't like their model. I think their model is limited. Let's just take a number. If you want to raise a million dollars and you have $850,000 and all those people made commitments and you don't make your million dollars, all the 850000 goes back to people. That is insanity. It's insanity. That is energy. That is commitment. Those are people that are on board. There's no reason you can't say, look, by this date, this is what was done. This was our goal. You don't discount and throw everything back as if nothing happened. A lot happened. So I think something else needs to be set up very, very different to acknowledge the energy, the commitments, the financing, the people, all the synergy that was created. And those models don't do it. They just don't do it. The other thing to keep in mind is there's crowdsourcing and there's crowdfunding. So the sites you're talking about are crowdsourcing. The distinction is what? There's still people making commitments. Tell me what... The distinction is is there was a watch company, I believe it was called Omega or something, Omega or something watch, that went out in May and they were looking for $100,000 to manufacture these watches that were compatible with the iPhone and the Google Droid phone. And they couldn't sell their stock. They couldn't borrow any money from the bank. No one would purchase their shares. so They had no way to get the capital. So they went out and decided to pre-sell the watches and say, listen, pay us $150. As soon as we get enough money raised, we'll send you the watch as soon as we can start manufacturing them. They went out to raise $100,000. I believe they wound up raising $10 million by, awesome. by selling. They sold $10 million worth of watches. That's a crowdsourcing. They sold the watches up front. Now they've got to manufacture and deliver them. Right. Okay. What I'm talking about, what Congress did, is allow the companies now to sell stock. That's the first time ever. They don't have to sell their products. They can sell stock. And That's all going to happen starting in 2013. Do you really feel that it will and it won't be interrupted by whoever's administration gets in, that it'll still continue to manifest? 
Yes, I do, because 99% of everybody in the House and the Senate voted for this thing. That's great. And before they repeal it, there's got to be some negative reaction to it. So, yes, I think it's going to get off the ground. And if it's ever going to be repealed, I would give it five years down the road. The argument against it that one would have is, hey, this is going to be like the Wild West because you're going to have now hundreds of thousands of entrepreneurs who are going to go out and take advantage of this. There's so many different ideas out there that people have, inventions that people have come up with. You know, it's practically one person on every block in a town that fiddles and invents and does all this other stuff. So, you know, once somebody in town gets funded and it makes a newspaper in Wichita, now you're gonna things gonna explode and people say, Hey, geez, I was he was able to do that by going to this website and getting his money. I'm gonna do the same thing. And at the same time you're gonna have investors. It's about getting those two groups together, but it could be really significant if it's executed. It's the only thing that's really positive in the future for the U.S. economy. I think it's fantastic, and I think it's also a gateway to a new economy, actually. It's a portal. Right. It takes the monopoly being run by the Securities and Exchange Commission and this stronghold that only certain people with a certain financial playing card can get involved. Many people are going to be inspired and invigorated to do what they've been wanting to do because there's now capacity to get it done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, 10% of the population of the United States went west to pan for gold. Yeah, there's a lot of people out of work. Think about how many people took early retirement. How many people out there are looking for jobs? You know, people were really forced into retirement, took early retirement, that have time on their hands. I don't think you're going to get 10% of the population, that would be 30 million people, looking for capital for their companies. But I certainly believe you could have 30 million people between those companies who are seeking this capital and those who want to invest. I certainly think you're going to have 10% of the population participate. After what's happened in the economy, there's probably more people with $100 and $1,000 to invest than there are with $100,000 to invest. Oh, absolutely. What is your take on the stock on Google, Apple, and Facebook? I'd like you to just share your insight using stock diagnostics and your own experience, what you're seeing now. Facebook, I, I, it doesn't really have enough data for me to tell you what the cash flow trends are. Okay. The other two have growing cash flow, Google and Apple. You know, they're all obviously good companies. The question is, do you really want to make some serious money? And I found that it's impossible to make five, ten times your money over any relative period of time by buying stocks that are in the news every single day. What I'm saying is these things are fully valued. Can they go up 5 or 10% a year for the next five years? Any of them? Yeah, possibly. But So they're fully valued. And, you know, I just read a piece by somebody today, and this is my thoughts on this. If you take the total U.S. stock market and the value of all the companies that are in the market and aggregate them and add them all together, all 10,000 companies, you would find that Apple, Google, and Facebook represent high percentages of the total amount of stocks, the value of those in the market, total number of stocks. So I told people in 2000 that I felt that Microsoft, which was the highest valued company at the time, bigger than Exxon, based upon its growth trajectory for that stock to continue going up at the rate it was going up, it would absolutely it'd have to take over the entire stock market. I mean, in other words, you'd assume everybody would sell every single share of stock that they owned and everything else and put all the money in Microsoft. So that's sort of my take on Apple. Apple's a great company. It's profitable. It's got growing cash flow. But I don't see any way for it to continue marching at the same, given the same rate of return over the next five years that it's gotten over the last five years. But I think it'll be a fraction of the return it's been over the last five years because there's, there's, no, there's nowhere for it to go it's already so big. So a company can only get to the point where it becomes so big and the rate of growth slows because it's constricted by the economy itself. Interesting. Very, very interesting. And of course, Google is such a giant. It's posing a real threat, I think, to Apple too, continuously. Yeah. But again, I've made my money personally and for people who are close to me and my former clients that I was in when I was in the brokerage industry a lot of money by finding those stocks that are totally overlooked 
tremendous potential, and no one's really following them. I've been in this business since 1977, and my specialty is I'm a big game hunter. I'm looking for things that are going to multiply at least 10 times in value over a three to seven year period. And you're not going to see those kind of returns on any of the three companies you just mentioned. Do you think that the financial news networks have kept us focused on these kinds of companies also because the other kind of companies that would have a higher return are kind of being kept close to the vest. In other words, people aren't really talking about them. It's just happening quietly. Or do you think that it's just that we haven't had the tool that you created to use to assess what is the well, next? Well, you, you're asking me a question about financial news media. Financial news media is going to cover those stocks that are the most widely held. So every day, every newsroom of every newspaper, magazine, web, CNBC, every day, they're looking for news on Apple, which is probably the most widely held stock on the planet right now. And from there, that's what they cover because that's what's going to capture their eyeballs. They have no reason to look at some company that's got tremendous potential that's not widely held. How do people get the Global Financial News Network as the source of what's going on and be able to use stock diagnostics to make their decisions? Is there a membership or how does it work? Just go to stockdiagnostics.com and sign up and become a subscriber, and it will give you the data. Punch it in, it'll go in, and it's either going to show all green or I mean, it'll show you the cash flow. My six-year-old was helping me with it years ago. Um, he's no longer six, but it's pretty uh, intuitive. If you put 10 stocks in it, I will guarantee you that six of them will probably be just good, solid green cash flow. And the other four will be, you know, some reds and some greens, and you'll have a couple that may be all red. So it's pretty simple and easy to use. There was a company called Wise Trade that created these different colors so that you can tell what was going on in the currency markets. Yours reminds me of the Forex, but the application is for stocks. Just so you understand, there's two ways you can analyze a stock. There's fundamental where you look at the financial statements of a company and buy it based upon just looking at the profits and the financial statements, or there's technical that's based upon price action. When you say price action, do you mean price moves? Yeah, the, okay. the share price moves. Okay, very good. So Wise Trade was in the business of giving you reds and greens based upon the price movement of the stock. Stock Diagnostics gives you reds and greens based upon how the financial statement looks. Which includes the cash flow position. That's right. There's a relationship between the financial statement and the ultimate move in the stock. Back when I was a young broker in 1977 with Merrill Lynch, I had come across a research study by Standard & Poor's. I got a letter stating what were the 10 stocks that had the best earnings performance or financial performance over the previous 10 years between 67 and 76. And I went out and did my research on those stocks because I wanted to see what the price, you know, my father had traded stocks by looking at price. He'd take me and we'd watch the ticker tapes, you know, in the brokerage office back then. You know, when I got in the business, I had no idea what drove a stock, and most brokers don't. I mean, that's the sad part of it. I only learned this because of my thirst to know more. I was a young guy. But most of your financial planners, brokers, don't even understand what I'm going to tell you right now. And that is what I learned when I went back and looked at those 10 top financial performers from their financials. Over the previous 10 years, I found that the stock prices went up between 20 and 50 times on all 10 of those. Wow. So you made 20 to 50 times your money on all 10 of them. In subsequent years, I did some more research at DLJ. So my whole life has been to find those stocks that can multiply in value by 10, 20, 50 times. I've been doing this since 1977. When I was at Donaldson, Lufkin, and Jen Red, I got access to their computers. I found there was a relationship between a company's sales increases and its share price increases over 10-year periods. So I found many cases. I found a company that its sales went up 60 times and the stock went up 100 times. I found 250 companies that the stocks actually multiplied right along with their sales. If you can find a company that's going to multiply its sales over the next three years by 10 times, the shares in that company are going to increase by 5 to 15 times. So the cash flow is an important metric because the cash flow tells you whether they're generating any cash on those sales. Very interesting. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. 
Did you know that approximately 65,000 of the 70,000 chemicals that have been dumped into the environment are considered to be highly toxic? That we are ingesting those toxins through the air, the water, and the food supply? And that no matter how much you eat organic food and drink the best, purest water, we all have to detoxify from these chemicals that we're being bombarded with. We're also being bombarded with something invisible. The radiation fallout from Fukushima, one of the worst man-made environmental disasters humanity has seen since Chernobyl. In combination with the BP oil spill, the fact is that we have to detoxify our bodies of toxins and of the radiation. But how do you do that? You do that with rock-powdered zeolite. Zeolite is the most effective mineral you can take to detoxify your body. Zeolite has been used to treat Chernobyl victims the land and agriculture, it's been very effective. It's also given to animals to detoxify as well. If you are interested in establishing a prevention program and detoxifying your body, go to etszeolite.com or call Hank Heister at 818-707-0468. And if you tell him it's rainmaking time, you will get free shipping for the product that you order. Call Hank Heister at 818-707-0468 and order your Zeolite today. And back to the show. Now talk a little bit about the bear market tracker. I believe, and I've said it since 2007, that we're in a secular bear market. And if you look over the years, the market rotates since for the last hundred some odd years. In fact, there's information at bearmarkettracker.com that you can go in and watch a video and all that stuff. But the market swings from either what they call a long-term bull or a long-term bear. Generally, it swings in periods between 8 and 15, 20 years. So a market's either in a long-term bullish trend or a long-term bearish, which means it can't be both. And basically what I found is the trends over the last 50 years have been tied to the baby boomers. So basically, if you look at mid-1980s to 2000, it was because you had all these baby boomers. Uh, you know, After World War II, we all know that there was a surge in the population when all the GIs came home. <laughs> and sure. that is basically dictated the growth of everything since then. As those people grew up and those baby boomers became productive and entered the workforce, they also became the most productive in the mid-80s. And now we're at the point where those baby boomers are all retiring, so they're not adding, they're not being productive in the workforce, but more importantly, they're saving their money. They're not spending anymore. So this has contracted the economy, and it's going to keep the economy in contraction I'm 57 years old for the rest of my life. And unless you get the crowdfunding thing going, we're pretty much in a downtrodden economy, at least for the foreseeable future. Do you think that the downfall of the market has been synthetically induced? Or do you also think it's an organic function, these trends of 15 to 20 years where it's a bear market? Do you find the bear markets have been synthetically induced because of government intervention, or do you find that it's some other reason, besides your comment about the baby boomers? I don't think it's government intervention. It's the trends. The market marches up for a period of time, and eventually it gets to the point where it can no longer go any further. You know, everybody's in, and everybody's in a good mood, and then the mood shifts. Stocks start getting hit, and then everybody's psychology gets negative. It's a psychology thing. And it also sounds like there's a cyclical thing that just is happening over time that you've noticed. Yes. If you look at, the, again, the bear market tracker highlights all of these bull and bear markets back into the 1800s. It's back to what I just said to you before about Apple. And I said this about Microsoft back in 2000. You know, once a company gets to the certain point where it continues to go up and up and up and up, and it becomes a larger piece of the total picture, it runs out of room to grow. Why is that? Is it psychological? Is it psychological? No, it's, it's mathematics. Let's say the U.S. market right now is $10 trillion. If you take all of the stocks in the United States and add them all up, and you had $10 trillion, and you could buy them all, that's what it would cost you to buy every single public company. Okay? Okay. 
If Apple right now represents $600 billion of that, or 6%, is Apple going to eventually go to a $10 trillion valuation and everything else out there is going to be absolutely worthless? No. So there's only so much room, there's only so much money out there to buy Apple shares. If you make the argument that Apple's going to double from 600 to 1300 now you're talking about Apple now equals 12% of the total market. Apple's multiplied in value over the last 10 years. I'm not sure how many times, but a number of times. My point is, it's, it, there's gravity, okay? There is no such thing as a stock that can just grow to the moon. Because if it were able to do that, all the other people, all the other mutual funds would have to sell everything they own, their IBM, their Google, their Facebook. They'd have to sell the shares and everything else to support the increase in the value of Apple as a company. Very interesting. What business do you think a company like Apple is in, as opposed to what business do you think Facebook is in? Because they're in very different businesses. Apple's in the business of creating devices and providing them to the world. And Facebook is basically in social media. They don't have any devices. They're the middleman for 900 million individuals. A lot of times, even founders and CEOs are confused about what business their company's in. Theodore Levitt was talking about in his book, The Marketing Imagination, when the railroads were asked what business they were in, and their answer was, we're in the railroad business. And so when it came time for them to evolve and to expand into other methods of transportation, they didn't perceive themselves to be in the transportation business. And it's very instructive to note that. So I guess how these companies view what business they're in will also determine the opportunities that come their way, right? Well, the other thing is, you know, a big company like Google or Microsoft or any of these companies, Microsoft is a good example. Microsoft is a huge luxury liner in terms of a boat. Think about them as ships. So these are the biggest luxury liners in the world. It's very difficult to turn those luxury liners around, even right or left. Once they get on that track and Wall Street expects them to deliver on their current business models, all that stuff, all their employees very difficult to turn a luxury liner. And that's why, ultimately, the best businesses to be in that will stand the test of time are either energy, specifically oil and gas, or publishing. I agree. Every city in this country has a newspaper that's a monopoly that has been there for 50 years plus. What other businesses can you think of in your town that have been in business 50 years? The publishing business is the best business. And in fact, if you look at where could you have put new money in and created enormous wealth in the last 20 years, it's Oracle, Microsoft, Google, eBay, Amazon. What do all these companies have in common? They're all online publishing companies. I don't think that they would consider themselves publishing companies just because they're online. But I'm saying to you, that's what they are eBay publishes bids and offers between people trying to sell items. They're not in the business of selling something and shipping it. Amazon's the same thing. These are all just different variations. The company that I founded, Global Financial News Network, is an online publishing company, and I really have an opportunity to create enormous wealth for my family and for our shareholders that staying power, as opposed to if I went out and tried to put my efforts into a chain of pizzerias. What are the challenges for you in the here and now with the current marketplace and the current perception of people in the market in terms of what's happening now? Challenges for me and my company? Yes. My biggest challenge is I'm a visionary and I'm also a pioneer. And pioneers wound up getting arrows in their back a lot of times. You know, as I said earlier in this interview, I'm clearly a visionary who looks at long-term future trends and tries to position myself to be there. The downside of that is it's very difficult to get anybody to understand or believe in what you're doing or at least get an interest in what you're doing. So it's difficult to raise capital to make it happen. So when this new law comes in and is actually manifest and accessible for use, you'll be hitting the ground going ahead and using crowdfunding, correct? Yes, we'll use some crowdfunding. We have a crowdfunding subsidiary company that we formed. We're going to raise some capital for it. We're looking for partners who want to get involved with us. We're looking for people who want to get involved with the management side. Because of the information we produce, we think that we're well positioned to be a dominant participant in the crowdfunding initiative, the crowdfunding industry. Now, you formed crowdclassifieds.com. Right. 
So you're looking for strategic partners, a management team, and also investors. How long ago was this formed? We formed it in June. Okay. So it's just we've recently a, been formed. We've got a proposed board of directors and all that stuff. You know, we're constrained, the company, by financial and human resources. So we need more human resources to get involved for us to really put our full force behind this crowd. But we have a huge advantage because we're the sole source of the information that those who want to invest in crowdfunding companies need because we've got the industry information and all that stuff on all the industries that those crowdfunding companies are going to be participating in. And the crowdfunding companies themselves need our information to write their business plans and woo their investors and keep their investors informed of what's going on in their industries. There's nobody else in the world who produces this kind of information because of our systems that we built to produce this kind of information. I have a question for you about Regulation D offerings that very few people know about and utilize. What do you think of Reg D and how Reg D has been instrumental up until this crowdfunding becomes really available and the whole law changes in January of 2013? What do you think of the Regulation D offerings? The regulations around that have been changed so that companies raising capital via Reg D, special regulation 506, are also able to advertise to raise capital. So that's sort of another thing that's been unleashed that's a positive for the U.S. economy and gives the company an ability to raise capital by advertising its shares on the Internet or whatever, as opposed to having to go through a broker. Now, what I was told, Michael, a few years back is that Reg D was the structure that allowed entrepreneurs and visionaries and pioneers to raise money, the first million dollars, from unsophisticated investors. Is that correct? Well, you, well, there's two types I hear. One is for the first million. It might be Reg A or something like that. I don't think Reg Well, D. I did a segment on Reg D with a guy who does nothing but focus on Reg D investments, and that's what he said on the air. You can bring in a, a limited number of unaccredited investors into a Reg D deal. Okay. But it's a limited number. So you couldn't go out today and raise a million dollars from a thousand people at a thousand dollars a piece on a Reg D deal that are unaccredited. I think it's thirty-five or fifty investors or something. Yeah, like that. something yeah. like that. Right. Okay. Talk a little bit about SDX, TRM, and IEDU. What is that? Those relate to the fact that I also use the cash flow anomalies to identify stocks that are going to go up in value. In 2003, I did a study, and I discovered what I thought were, at that time, the two most undervalued stocks out of 10,000 stocks in the entire U.S. stock market. And that was based upon their cash flows, and it was also based on their financial statements, their financials. And I singled these two stocks out, and I gave them to some of our shareholders here at GFNN. One of them was TRM Corp. And the other one was Investools. They both came out of the same study. I ran a computer screen looking for those stocks that had anomalies, came up with several dozen, then whittled it down to the point where these were clearly heads and above, significantly undervalued as compared to everything else in the market. I want to clarify. You said TRM and what was the other one? The other one was Investools. Okay. I found both of those stocks. They were actually both under a dollar a share when I found them. I mean, whenever a stock's traded under a dollar share, you can be assured that they've not been discovered yet. I found those two, and I recommended them to some of my investors that are involved in GFNN and actually bought shares for my wife and her account of one of them at 22 cents a share. And the other one had gone up by 20 times in value 14 months later. Wow. The one my wife bought, even though we, at that time we were cashed up, we only put maybe eight to 10000 in it, we were able to subsidize our income for several years with that because it ultimately went to as high as $18, which is about 90 times. I don't know. We sold some at three. We sold some at five because we needed to live off of it. Those two stocks had exceptional cash flow statistics. I have a question about this. Because of the crash of 2008, and a lot of people are now scared about the stock market, and a lot of brokers, whether they're accurate or not, they're making money with a buy or a sell because they get paid either way. So because there's contraction with respect to the perception and the activity in the marketplace, what would you say about people who want to invest in the stock market now but are not going to because of what's happened? I mean, in other words, how could anybody really invest 
without having a tool like what you've created, knowing what we now know. For example, when Steve Jobs got ill and that got leaked to the public, Apple stock dropped 100 points that day. That's how sensitive the stock market is. So what do you say to something like that? I think that investors either need to use the tools that we make available, such as stock diagnostics, or they need to be dealing with someone who is using these tools as a professional investor. We're in a bear market. And by the way, in one of the past bears, the market had previously hit a high in 1968 or 9, and the market actually went back to where it was in 68 or 69 and 72. And then, of course, it really crashed after that. So that bear market, which started, I believe, in 1966, ended, ended in 1981 or 68. I can't remember. It was 66 or 68, ended in 81. The point is, is that we're still in a bear market. So I'm telling people right now, most of your money should be in cash. I mean, if you look at it, we're in October of 2012 right now. And the market is close to a five-year high. What do you mean by the market is in a five-year high? High of what? If you look at the stock market, the Dow Jones, the S&P 500, they're at the highest levels they've been at since the middle of 2008. They're at the highest levels. I mean, the Dow goes up another 4%, it'll go to an all-time high, 4 or 5%. Why do you think it's doing that in a bear market? It's called a cyclical bull in a bear market. Investors are not long-term. They're not thinking like I'm thinking. They're not looking out at the trends. They're not looking at the baby boomers that are retiring every day. And, you know, I'm saying to you, the market is infamous for continuing to go up when it's ultimately getting ready to go down. In 2007, which is a year before the crash, I was a writer for Equities Magazine. And I wrote an article telling my readers to get out of all of the five broker stocks, including Lehman, Bear Stearns, and Merrill Lynch, because of their horrible negative cash flow, the same thing that I found with Enron. Goldman Sachs was another one, and same with Morgan Stanley. I wrote an article, get out of that thing. Get out of these stocks. Get out. Do not buy them. They're going to go down significantly. Three months later, all five of those stocks hit all-time new highs. By March, Bear Stearns had fallen by 90% and was acquired by J.P. Morgan. And we know within a year, Merrill Lynch was down 80-90% from where you had it, where I told you to get out of it. And of course, Lehman, you lost everything if you held it. The point is, the market continued to march and didn't peak. The Dow Jones didn't peak until, I think, it actually peaked in October of 2007. The Dow Jones and the S&P 500 all-time highs, October of 2007. A year later, we're talking 10-year lows. So if you look at October as a very pivotal month, I think there's a tremendous amount of risk in the market right now because whenever the market hits a significant high or low during the month of October, get ready for a reversal. After the dot-com bubble crashed, where did the market bottom? What month did the market bottom? It bottomed for the S&P and the Dow in October of 2002. And then it takes off. It makes its next peak in October of 2007, and now here we are fast forward, and it's at a five-year high in October of 2012. It's not back to its all-time highs, but it's within distance, and it very well may go to an all-time high before it contracts again. What do you think of NASDAQ? It's a major exchange. It's, um, are you talking about the, the NASDAQ market? Yes. Look, all of these markets trend with each other because all of the companies who are members of the NASDAQ are also members of the S&P 500. And some of them who are members of NASDAQ are also members of the Dow Jones. So you're never going to have a situation where you have one market's going up 100% and one index is going down 50%. Never going to happen because you've got too many companies that are all in the same indexes. What do you think of the credit rating in the United States? I think that it's better than the rest of the world. And I've also written a lot of stuff on currency. I'm not in the camp that believes that in our lifetime that the dollar is going to crash and we're going to have to use our gold that we've got in our basement to barter. And the reason why is a currency's strength or endurance, let's call endurance, let's not use the word strength, is based upon the ability for the government to pay its bills. That ability rests in the government's ability to tax its individuals. So if you look, there's only two currencies, well, there's three currencies that have been in place 
that have had really no interruption for the last hundred years. That's the dollar, the Swiss franc, and the pound. There's only two currencies out of the three which have been democracies. I mean, Switzerland is the oldest currency. So my point is, is that if you're a billionaire in Russia and you need to put your money somewhere into a country where you know it's got the odds of being around and be a democracy and it's going to be able to tax its people 50 years down the road, 100 years down the road, where can you put your money? It's either Switzerland, the United States, or the U.K., do you think that governments make their money by just taxation? Are you saying they're not in other businesses? They're not in derivatives? They're not in other types of investments? No, you look at the look. The lion's share of what a government makes is by being able to tax its people. By being able to levy a tax or increase the taxes on the people and have the people pay. In Greece, no one pays taxes. That's a big problem. Here, people pay their taxes. 99% of the people pay their taxes on time. And if we had to increase everybody's taxes by 30%, then people would pay them. That's basically the bottom line. Now, in the meantime, if you had owned Deutschmarks, they're worthless. French francs, worthless. There's only three currencies in the world that have been around long enough for you to at least feel like you're going to leave a legacy of your money to your family. You wouldn't get involved in the Renembe? That's, I think, an Iraqi currency or something. The, the no, the Renembe, no, the Renembe is the Chinese currency. Chinese currency. No, absolutely. I mean, look, China was a communist country since 20 years ago. I don't know that it was. I know that it is. Right. I mean, I mean it's been a communist country for a long time. There you go. And the bottom line is, again, if you're a billionaire in Russia and you've got a billion dollars in rubles, you want to make sure there's some money out there for your descendants 100, 200 years in the future. Are you going to think about putting money in buying Chinese currency? No, I'll have a portion. By the way, I, call, I don't know why I call it the yuan all the time. But anyway, no, you're not going to do it because you remember Tian Tiananmen Square? I mean, you of know, course. It's, no, I it's, understand. Not, a, it's but, not a free democracy, and it's not been around long enough. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. <laughs> I guess you'd get in a big fight with Jim Rogers about this. But anyway, people have different takes on what's going on and what the strength of currencies are. If I had a billion dollars or even less than that, I would be in gold. I would be in silver. I would be in natural resources. I would be in water. I would be looking for water all over the world. And I would be in certain stocks. And I would be definitely for way less than a billion dollars using your stock diagnostics ASAP, like in the now. Right. I have a question about your take on what happened to the New York Stock Exchange. I know this is not necessarily part of what you may or may not be knowledgeable about, but it was sold to Deutsche Borsk. And I was wondering why you think it was sold. I asked Reggie Middleton about this, and he says, well, it wasn't in a great position. It wasn't making enough money. I mean, it was sold to a different country. Is that a statement about anything, about what's going on? I don't think it was sold. I think that the deal was nixed by regulators. Really? I was looking at this the other day. I'm not sure what the status of that is. I just know that if you go look at Wikipedia, you know. I, I don't trust Wikipedia for anything. Everything has changed every day in there. People just go in and change stuff. But I just remember reading in the paper that it was sold to another company in Germany. Well, the Deutsche Börse was trying to buy it. Right. I was looking at something about this. I was surprised. I thought it had been sold. It says... You know, to be sold, we'll acquire, that's in February of 11. All right, well, we'll keep that on a to be continued. I would like to keep it here, obviously. There's significant things going on in the world in stocks. I'm a shareholder of a company that I think has got very interesting upside that's in this whole mix. Can you say it? It's InvestView. By the way, I have this website, OnlineFinancialSector.com. you got a lot of websites. Yeah, the reason why I want to mention this is this is one of the sectors of the economy you won't have money in because what's happened is more and more people are not using traditional brokers and are doing their own investing. And my kids will never use a broker. They're good at video games. I don't see this current generation calling up a stockbroker and trying to figure out which mutual fund they should have them buy or, or stock or whatever. So the online financial sector is, in my opinion, one of the safest sectors in the economy to invest in because most of it is online publishing and there's no inventory. I mean, think about it. I mean, the reason why the publishing business has been so good is Microsoft has little, if any, inventory. They used to send out disks. Now it's just all online, but they don't have any, hardly any inventory to, to, to deal with. 
They don't have receivables. So when you're in an online business, it's infinitely has less risk than a traditional business. I mean, there's more risk in Apple than there is in Google because at some point, Apple could have a billion dollars worth of inventory of phones that go obsolete that they're going to have to get rid of and take a loss on. Google doesn't have that problem. So one of the companies I'm a shareholder of is InvestView. You know, they just made an acquisition. They have the only securities lending exchange now on the planet. And they're a small company. It's an illiquid stock. It's a high-risk stock. But it's one that I think has got the potential of multiplying in value over the next three years. Well, I want to tell you that you are so knowledgeable, and it's such a pleasure to talk with you. It's so interesting. You really have a clear grasp of so many aspects of things going on. It'd be very neat to get you together with a few other folks I've interviewed and bring you all together. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been talking with, learning from, and listening to Michael Merkowski, the founder of OnlineFinancialSector.com, BearMarketTracker.com, crowdclassifieds.com and stockdiagnostics.com and also the Global Financial News Network, GFNN. You can go to onlinefinancialsector.com and read about him. And I want to thank you so much for being with us and I look forward to having you back. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Kim. 